Is it safe for people to speak up on your team? Are you regularly hearing new ideas and dissenting voices? If not, there's a ton you can do to create more psychological safety at work, even if your larger organization doesn't. On this episode, Amy Edmondson shows us how. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 404. Produced by Innovate Learning. Maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show gives you access to the practical wisdom that will empower you to become a better leader. I think virtually all of us as leaders want to create an environment in our workplaces where people feel safe to speak up with their ideas with the things they may see the organization doing incorrectly or see us doing incorrectly. And yet, in a lot of organizations, that is very much a challenge. Today's guest has done a tremendous amount of brilliant work on how to build psychological safety in organizations. And I'm so glad that she's here today to teach us a bit about how we can do this as well in our own organizations. I'm so thrilled to welcome Amy Edmondson to the show today. Amy is the Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at the Harvard Business School. She's been recognized by Thinkers 50 Global Ranking as one of the management thinkers at the top of her field for many years and has been honored with their Talent Award in 2017. She studies teaming, psychological safety, and leadership, and her articles have been published in numerous academic and management outlets. Amy is the author of several highly regarded books on teaming and psychological safety, including her newest book, The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Amy, I am so glad to welcome you to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Dave. I had Edgar Schein and Peter Schein on the show last year, who I know you're a huge fan of. And absolutely. When I asked Edgar, who else should I talk to (laughs) around this topic? You were the first person he mentioned. And I have just enjoyed this book so much. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I think almost every leader and organization espouses, or at least thinks about, wanting to create a safe place for people to speak up at work. And yet, that is a challenge in a lot of organizations today still, isn't it? It really is. And, you know, just recently I was over in a a busy hospital setting and I did a talk and I decided to open the talk by asking people, just think of a time in your career at work, didn't have to be recent, but sometime where you had something you wanted to say that you thought was work relevant. It could be a question. It could be an idea. You know, it could be a concern or a problem or a mistake and you held back. And you know, I saw an audience full of people nodding. Like every nobody had a problem thinking of such a time. And I I limited it to, you know, it had you had to really believe it was something that could matter. But you know, in many cases people weren't sure enough to actually speak, but they were sure that it mattered. And then I had them share with their neighbor just the attributes of the situation. And again, nobody had a challenge doing this assignment, which is in itself a very strong statement of how prevalent this challenge is. Yeah, indeed. And and the word that I think comes up probably for a lot of us, and you mentioned in the book too, is trust a bit. And yet there is a distinction between trust and psychological safety. 
What's the distinction between the two? The, the, the key distinction, because they have a lot in common, or they, you know, they have a strong relationship with each other, which I'll try to clarify. But the key distinction is that trust is by its nature other-oriented. It's other-focused. When I'm worrying about, when I'm thinking about trust, I'm trying to figure out whether I trust you, your intentions, your behaviors, your actions. You know, will you do what's in my best interest? You know, will you do what's in our best interest? So it's it's very much a word that we use spontaneously to size up how trustworthy others might be, you know, when we're not monitoring them. Whereas psychological safety is very self-focused. It's very much about how do I feel right here, right now? Do I feel that it's okay to open my mouth? Do I feel it's okay to take a risk? You know, is this the kind of context where I can bring my full self to work? And so you can see that there's clearly overlap there. I'm going to be more comfortable bringing my full self to work if I trust the people around me. Sure. But it's not capturing the same phenomenon. Yeah, that's a really helpful distinction. And as, as I'm thinking about that, one of the things that is really fascinating to me that comes out in your research is that that psychological safety varies a lot even inside of an organization. Because I think that one of the obstacles people probably have is they hear a, a term like psychological safety and they say, well, I'd, in my organization, we're not <laughs> so good at doing that. And what can I do? And it turns out, as an individual leader of an individual team, there, there's a lot we can do. There is. And just to emphasize that first point you made, in every organization I've studied, and this is in hospitals, in retail banks, in you know, a restaurant chain, in um, a manufacturing setting, every single place I've been, there are huge differences across groups in psychological safety, meaning it's never a uniform phenomenon. You know, this company has it, that doesn't. There can be very real differences between companies as well, but even within companies, and even within companies with famously strong corporate cultures, there's variance. So it, this becomes a very local phenomenon. I mean, it's it's a palpable climate difference that can exist between units in the same hospital or between teams in the same company or restaurants in the same restaurant chain and so on. And so what does that mean? It means that no matter where you are, you know, at what level or in what location, in your workplace, you can make a difference. I mean, you can do smaller and larger things to help create a kind of healthy climate of psychological safety. Mm. It gives me so much hope to hear you say that, and that the research really bears that out as well, too, that we really have agency on helping create this in our workplaces, and at least with the people we influence on a daily basis. We do. And I think part of the problem is people don't recognize it. They don't recognize the opportunity to make a difference. I mean, they assume, and this is a natural assumption, but they assume that because I'm not the boss, there's nothing I can do. They don't assume, well, you know, just how I show up matters. It matters to my colleagues. It matters maybe to people below me in the organization, but it also can matter to people right above me. Anyone who comes in contact with me can be slightly influenced by how I see things. One of the other things that was really interesting to me looking through your research is just looking at 
know, more effective teams, and I know you've done so much work on teaming as well, mm-hmm. that more effective teams showed to be making more mistakes. But there's some nuances there. And I was wondering if you could could share a bit about that for us. Sure. This is actually how I stumbled into the idea of psychological safety in the first place. I was doing a study as a graduate student, as a PhD student, that I thought was really interesting. And I also thought it was pretty simple and straightforward. And the study was designed to more or less replicate findings that had been done in the aviation industry, where where better teams, meaning better relationships, better coordination, better communication, made fewer mistakes in aviation. And of course, that research was done in simulators, right? which means you could set up the simulators to have very challenging uh, situations and see how well the cockpit crew react. And you know, if they crash, it's not real. It's just a simulator. But some physicians in healthcare thought, you know, that's not altogether dissimilar from us. So what, you know, maybe we should be studying, and they invited me in to do this, maybe we should be studying whether better teams in the hospital setting make fewer mistakes. And so they were getting data on adverse drug errors, so sort of errors, human errors that lead to to adverse drug events in patients. And my part of the study was simply to assess the team properties, and I used a standard team survey instrument. And I thought it was going to be pretty simple. I thought I would show when I got all the data that the better teams, of course, made fewer errors. Right. And so I got all that data, really excited to plug it into the computer and run the correlations. And lo and behold, first thing I noticed was that the relationship was statistically significant. So I was really excited. Like I had a, I had a finding. Yeah. And then I looked more closely and I realized, uh-oh, the sign is in the wrong direction. You know, it should, <laughs> right? It's supposed to be negative. It's supposed to be better teams, fewer mistakes. But what my data were saying was better teams were making more mistakes, not fewer. And you know, I almost panicked because that just seemed so wrong yeah. and problematic on so many levels. And but rather than panic, I sat down to think. And in thinking, it occurred to me that maybe, I mean, given how threatening mistakes and errors can be in a, in a setting where there is so much at stake, I mean, literally human lives at stake, it occurred to me that maybe when mistakes get made, and I don't mean you know life-threatening mistakes that actually take a life, but the many little human errors that happen along the way, most of which are caught and corrected before a patient is affected, most but not all, of course. But I, I, I mean, you know, the kinds of things that each and every one of us day in and day out are able, if we want to, to cover up. Right? We all know that every day we're making mistakes. And we all know that most of the time we're not standing around with the billboard advertising them. So yeah, right. it occurred to me that, you know, maybe what the trained medical investigators were tracking by way of error rates was subject to the natural human tendency to underreport errors, let's say. So if so, then I thought, well, maybe these better teams, according to the survey, you know, these high quality relationships, highly coordinating, communicating teams with better leadership, maybe they were more able and willing to talk about mistakes than the others, right? That just, uh. it seemed like a reasonable possibility. I mean, wasn't quite sure, but it seemed like a reasonable possibility. You know, there are just some workplaces or sports teams or, you know, we've all been there where it's just like, oh, I can let my guard down here. 
So I thought maybe that was going on, and it became quite an ordeal to prove to the satisfaction of the physicians involved that that might be true. But ultimately, I think I prevailed, and everyone began to realize this was a distinct possibility. And in fact, more, it was a likely characteristic, at least of that workplace. And when all was said and done, I realized if this was true, I'd have to try to measure it on purpose the next time, right? I'd have to, you know, I'd have to design a survey measure of this thing, this climate thing. Later, I called it psychological safety, in part drawing on the work of Ed Shine, who had talked about psychological safety back in the 60s. He'd talked about it as a, a factor one needed to have to effectively implement change in organizations. He was so far ahead of his time. I mean, it's just really amazing how much he's uncovered over the decades of, of, of culture and safety and humility. So, oh gosh, there's so much here. So part of what I think that virtually everyone thinks about as a leader is how can I do a better job of creating a safe place where we talk about mistakes and where we are willing to show up authentically, right? And mm. one of the things that I love about your work is that you figured out there's some ways that we can do this as leaders. You know, there's there's a lot of complexity, of course, but there's also some key things we can do. And I, you have articulated a leader's toolkit for building <laughs> psychological safety. And there's a couple of key components to it, three key components. And I'm wondering if maybe you could share a bit with us on on these three areas. And and the first one is setting the stage. And from what I read, it sounds like here, there's a lot about expectation setting in setting mm, the stage. Mm -hmm. Yes. I really do think setting the stage is about expectation setting. And perhaps one of the more most important dimensions of expectation setting is expectations around problems and failures. I hate to you know, be, be, be focusing on the negative, but but in fact, those things don't have to be seen as negative. They have to be seen in some settings as inevitable and often part of getting getting ahead, you know, getting, you know, moving forward to to get new knowledge. So setting the stage is really about framing the work, you know, letting people know, wow, we're doing, you know, sort of crazy, uncertain, complex, interdependent work here that gives rise to ever-present potential for things to go wrong. So we have to be vigilant. What does that mean? It means we need to hear from you. Like when you're silent, you're probably not doing your job. Like what, you know, when you're noticing things, you're doing your job. That's just an example. Now, of course, not all workplaces are incredibly uncertain and complex. Some of them are wonderfully routine and repetitive and reliable. And we love those workplaces too. And so the framing is slightly different there. That framing there is we've got a wonderful process and it is creating great value for customers. And we believe we can make it better, right? So we need to hear from you. We need to hear from you when you see something that's not going quite right or when you have an idea for a small process improvement. So this is all about kind of setting expectations, not only about the nature of the work, which is really important to get us all on the same page, but also setting expectations about what we expect from good employees, you know, good good workers here who are sort of willing and able to stand out, not just trying to sit back and not get noticed. My sense is there's a lot of choices around language as well that 
leaders can use. And I, I really was intrigued by the case study in the book of a children's hospital that a leader was really working to be intentional about setting the stage and how they had changed some of the language around things like when there was an error of rather mm-hmm. than calling it an error of calling it an accident and rather than calling something an investigation of of using the term study and, right. uh, and so I was really interested in the choice of wording and I'm I'm also sort of curious when leaders use different words but but maybe nothing else changes do those <laughs> new words <laughs> then just take on the old meaning yes so there's a this is a two part question. And the first part is, you know, in a sense, the first part is, do words matter? And I think there's a resounding yes in response to that one, which is, oddly enough, words really do shape our thoughts. And and many times in, in subtle ways or ways in which we're not completely conscious of. So the hospital case you're describing in the, in the book, um, there's a, you know, wonderful leader named Julie Morath, who's chief operating officer of this hospital. And she proposes a kind of set of new words that she calls words to work by. And what she's trying to do is set the stage. She's trying to make sure people understand that, you know, things can go wrong. And when they do, it doesn't mean there's a bad guy. You know, it means there's an opportunity to quickly respond, catch, correct, improve a process so that that doesn't happen again. But she realizes that when we use words like, you know, an investigation, woo, you know, it sounds like. The, the police are coming, right? It's a, it's, yeah. It just creates a fearful response, whether consciously or not, and a near automatic tendency to hold back. So she proposes, we no longer use the word investigation in looking at these, say, adverse events, but instead let's use the word study. And study, it's a lot like, you know, it means the same thing, but it's it sounds kind of thoughtful and 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 maybe even academic, like our, our desire and study. You do you study when you do your homework for school. You know, our desire is to learn here. So does that shape how people think and behave? It absolutely does. Now, the second part of that question is, you know, when leaders come in and start using the new speak, you know, yeah, ooh, here's the new here's the new code code words that we've been asked to use, but their behavior is not congruent with the words they're using, that has a very powerful negative effect. And in fact, it has an even more powerful negative effect than if they'd never changed their words in the first place, because it triggers a a very natural hypocrisy sensor. Yeah. (laughs) That's not a technical term, but I'm going to give it that term, right? (laughs) Sounds good to me. we're, We're all very sensitive to hypocrisy. Like we're sensitive to the gap between words and deeds. And when someone seems to be claiming territory they don't own, you know, territory of values and high moral ground, and their behavior speaks to the opposite, we punish them for it cognitively. Right? I mean, we like them even less than if they had just been, you know, a consistently some kind of dictator uh, person. Yeah. No, I, I I hear such a strong call there of when we are conscious about choosing the right words, it's also incumbent upon us to make sure we're ready to do the work behind that word of to be bringing the curiosity and the humility that is so important to those words to be really authentic to what they mean. Yes, indeed. I mean, humility is so important. And a lot of times, I think, especially in business and in medicine, you know, when people hear the word humility, they kind of think, oh, isn't that a bridge too far? I mean, sure, I'm going to be, you know, 
I'm going to be curious. I'm going to be welcoming and, and, and a sort of good leader, but you really want me to be humble? And my answer is, yes, I really want you to be humble. And here's why. It's not that I want you to disavow the great expertise and experience and skills you have. No, we're very pleased you have them, right? That's, that's great. The humility needs to come from the fact that not a single one of us have a crystal ball. You know, as knowledgeable or expert as we are in something, we still can't see the future. So we need to be appropriately humble that the situation we find ourselves in at the present moment always has some degree of uncertainty, some degree of ignorance, you know, some degree of wrongheadedness. And if we just, if we can sort of start from that place and remind ourselves that we don't know, then we automatically become more approachable and fundamentally better leaders. That's a great lead into the second piece of the toolkit, which is inviting participation. And one of the significant messages you have in that step is what you've called situational humility. Mm. Tell me more about what that means. Why, why situational? It means that it's dri- my, my humility is driven, and I think it makes it more palatable, but my humility is driven by the situation. You know, the situation might be something as ordinary as, wow, I have got back-to-back meetings this week and virtually no time to prepare between them. That's really tough, right? That's a, that's a tough situation to be in. So I'm going to do my very best to kind of find some time and get the best preparation and reach out to uh, colleagues who might have info I need. You know, I'm going to, I'm going to do my best, but I'm going, to, I'm going to start from this place of recognizing and being open about the challenge ahead. And that's just ordinary. You know, a more extraordinary situation might be the rescue of the Chilean miners 10 years ago. You know, 33 men were suddenly buried by a massive cave-in 2,000 feet below the surface of the earth under rock, harder, you know, the hardest rock in the world. And there was no known drilling technology that could solve this problem. And yet, the president of the country and the, the leader he appointed to lead the rescue kind of decided to give it a try anyway. And you can readily imagine the situational humility they felt, right? Again, and they were both experienced, expert, impressive people. And yet in that situation, they're going to feel overwhelmingly humble about the lack of answers because that's just the nature of the situation. You mentioned Anne Mulcahy in the book, the former CEO of Xerox, and who, who's credited with just doing an amazing turnaround of the company. And what is it that she did around situational humility that works so well at Xerox? You know, she was really known for saying, I don't know. And and if you think about it and start listening, now go, you know, go back to work and start listening for how often do you hear someone say, oh, I don't know. Mm. It might not be often enough in most organizations. And especially I've observed the higher you go, the more the psychological pressure seems on to not say it. So she was the chairperson and CEO of Xerox. And as you said, led it through, led the company through a really successful uh, transformation. But she would frequently admit, acknowledged, I don't know, when she was asked a question that she didn't have an informed opinion on. And well, that's important in the first place because we're, we're avoiding the sort of small irony of having 
nonsensical conversations because they're not based in good knowledge, but we're also sending a strong behavioral signal that this is an appropriate response when it's true. Yeah, yeah. And yet hard because I think in most organizations, the expectation is we have an answer, right? Right. The other part of this, speaking of hard, (laughs) is you mentioned proactive inquiry is so important. Oh. And you say this this is really hard too. What what's hard about proactive inquiry and, and what is it? That's so funny because on the one hand, how could proactive inquiry possibly be hard? Right? We all we have all known how to ask questions since we could first talk. Yeah. And of course the youngest children ask the most questions because they're quite aware that they don't have the answer. So what makes it hard psychologically as a very accomplished person or as a high high level person in an organization is that we have a taken for granted belief that we're supposed to have answers, not questions, that we're supposed to know everything, which is patently absurd. But, you know, we have that <laughs> belief that people expect me to know, which is why Mulcahy's model, it was so refreshing and so unusual. And so Part of why asking, you know, and and really asking good questions and really proactively asking questions is hard is that we simply fail to remember that's our job. And we simply fail to remember it's our job because we're subject to the common bias that we see reality in all its glory. Not that I see a portion of reality filtered through my perceptions, biases, and history. Right. So, yeah. you know, I don't I don't have that visceral experience every day that, aha, I'm looking at reality through my perceptions, bias and history. No, I think I see reality out there. And when you come along and see it differently, I find you limited or missing something. Right. So we have to always step back and remind ourselves that we see an incomplete and partial slice of reality. And that ought to make us curious. And once curious, then the art of the good question comes almost naturally. But it's got to be, I mean, this has to be something that's just put on post-it notes all over the place because we got to remember to ask more questions. And like the phrase, I don't know, if you listen hard in management conversations, you hear a dearth of really good questions. You hear a dearth of questions, period. And then oftentimes those you do hear are what we call leading questions or rhetorical questions. Yeah, and I love that you make the point in the book that a good question is one you don't know the answer to already. And right, that, that, right. that in, a, in a way, that seems obvious. And yet, when you go into corporate boardrooms and briefings with customers, you find that that's not always the case. And I, I love one of the questions that, that's in the book, going back to the children's hospital, of rather than people going in and saying, where were the mistakes or where did you see mistakes, the question that was used is is this one, was everything as safe as you would like it to have been this week with your patients? Right. What a beautiful question. It's a beautiful question because, A, it's, it's curious, it's open, I really do want to hear, and B, it's aspirational. Like the framing of the question isn't, did you see lots of hazards? Did you see lots of wrong things happening? It's, was everything as safe as you would like it to be? And once it was asked that way, people in, in the hospital working with patients just had that extraordinary aha moment, which is no, <laughs> it wasn't. I mean, there are all these times where I'm I'm catching and correcting something. Thankfully, I got it, you know, before something bad happened. But wow, is that really how it has to be set up? Or could I play a role in making things better? Yeah. And that's a key part of the toolkit as well as responding 
proactively. And one of the things you point out to leaders is that whether the suggestion comes in and it's good or bad or helpful or not, that it's really Mm. incumbent upon us, at least as a first step, to express appreciation. Tell me more about that. Why is is that so important? Well, it's so important because it's not natural and it makes a big difference. And, And so let me speak to both. So one, it is natural if someone comes to you with bad news or even an annoying question to be annoyed <laughs> or upset in some way. And so you have to catch yourself before you have that natural emotional response. You have to just take a deep breath and pause because what you're trying to do here is be very aware of the shadow of the future. You know, if you have an unpleasant experience as a result of coming to me with bad news or a question, you're not coming to me again. I'm sorry. You're just not going to. You're going to figure it out yourself or you're going to hide it somewhere where you hope I won't see it. And what I need instead is to remind myself that actually the worst thing that can happen to me is that I don't know what's going on, right? Not that something bad is going on, but that I don't know what's going on because then I'm unprepared and can be blindsided. So the puzzle is for leaders, how do I make something that is inherently an unpleasant or at least a non-pleasant situation, how do I make it actually almost positive experience. In fact, make it a positive experience. And there's two parts. One is the mini, you know, the mini reward of thank you, right? So if I can just say thank you for coming to me, it has a powerful effect, right? The people love to be appreciated, even in those micro ways. And then the second thing has to be something along the lines of how can I help, right? Because, and that's a more substantive reward, which is You've got this problem, and now I'm offering help. It might be me thinking it through with you. It might be a team that we need to throw together to address this recurring issue. It might be something else altogether, but it's proactive. It's future-oriented. It's you know We're not going to look back and say, why the heck did that happen? We're going to look forward and say, how do we make it better? Yeah. Well, you said something so significant there that really the big concern for leaders shouldn't be, am I hearing bad news? It should Mm -hmm. be that I'm not hearing the news at all. Because we have to assume (laughs) that there's always mistakes being made, that there are problems, that there are things that, in the case of the healthcare example, that are being unsafe. But the real danger is that that's not being discussed. It sounds like that's if we can get to the point where we're creating an environment where people feel comfortable discussing that, then we have the opportunity to do something about it. Exactly. And I, you know, I don't know, I don't have any data on this. It'd be fun to, it'd be fun to know, but like what percentage of top managers are aware that the thing they should be most worried about is that people aren't coming to them. Right. So, you know, because again, this is like the dog that didn't bark in, you know, Sherlock Holmes. It's, it's very hard to be tuned into the signal you're not hearing. But the wise leader will be tuned into the signal he or she isn't hearing. And if you're conscious that that's a huge risk factor, that you're not, the people aren't coming to you with what's really going on, then you're going to naturally want to find a way to lower that risk. It's, it's, and the things you have to do aren't rocket science. They're not super technical or challenging things. They're just a matter of overcoming the, the assumptions one might have. Is it going too far to say... That if I'm leading a team, an organization, and I'm not hearing about mistakes, and I'm not hearing bad news, that that should be a warning flag for me? 
Yes. I, well, I mean, unless you are one of those rare people that are operating in a completely predictable, certain, reliable organizational context, then what you just said is spot on. I, if I'm not hearing things, it's a problem because there's no scientific way it's true that nothing is happening of discrepancy or problem or interest. One of the key areas you mentioned, actually two other key areas you mentioned in responding proactively are to delegitimize, delegitimize, <laughs> let me see if I can say, yeah. <laughs> delegitimize failure. Thank you, Amy. And also sanction clear violations. And let me read one of the parts of the section that you wrote. You say, leaders who respond to all failures in the same way will not mm. create a healthy environment for learning. When a failure occurs because someone violated a rule or value that matters in the organization, this is very different than when a thoughtful hypothesis in the lab turned out to be wrong. Although obvious in concept, in practice, people routinely hmm. get this wrong. What is it people get wrong here? They don't quickly and analytically make the conceptual distinctions between types of failure. Right? So an experiment in a lab that had a good hypothesis, good good ideas behind it that failed is obviously, intellectually anyway, good news. I mean, not the failure is not good news, but the data are good news. The data are, oh, now we know, like we know something more about nature and we want to capitalize on it and design the next experiment faster than, you know, the competition in some other lab, right? So we're, we're we've got to, we've got to train ourselves to welcome those kinds of failures. And when scientific leaders don't do a good job of that, again, just like all other human beings, you know, the failure news doesn't come forward. So that's all a kind of growing discussion and more and more attention is being given to, we got to welcome failures for learning and, and so on. However, that doesn't apply to the kinds of failures that might occur in a lab or elsewhere um, when someone, let's say, violates a, you know, a safety protocol or, you know, when someone isn't paying attention and not trying very hard and the thing goes wrong and it wastes resources and time and maybe even creates harm, those kinds of failures are A, not good news, and B, genuinely deserving of some thoughtful sanctions in some way, right? I mean, we have to respond in such a way that those kinds of things are discouraged and we put in place the best systems we can to prevent them from happening again. Oh, it's such a helpful distinction. Thank you for articulating that. Boy, Amy, there's so much here that I I just wish for everyone who is listening who would like to create more psychological safety in their organization, and I think that's most folks, that they would dive in on this. Um, there's so much in the book, the case studies, um, and we're just scratching the surface today. So the book is The Fearless Organization, Creating Psychological Safety in the Workplace for Learning, Innovation, and Growth. Amy Edmondson is the author of The Fearless Organization. Amy, thank you so much for your time. Dave, thanks for having me. Thank you, Amy. As I mentioned, there's a ton of case studies in the book, and uh, two of them center around the space shuttle accidents, the Columbia and the Challenger from NASA, and the challenges that NASA had with psychological safety back then, and also a wonderful story of how NASA is doing a better job at that today, as many of you will be 
glad to hear. One of the key figures in the Challenger accident is a gentleman named Al McDonald. He was the one person who officially refused to sign for Challenger's launch the night before the dreadful accident. And uh, he tells his story on episode 229, Leadership Lessons from the Challenger Disaster. That is an episode that if this conversation was inspiring to you and you also want to dive deeper on a situation where there wasn't a lot of psychological safety and hear Al's story, I think it is uh, an important story for you to hear. Again, that's on episode 229. Also of value to you will be episode 241, Turn Followers into Leaders with David Marquet. One of the points Amy and I talked about is the importance of the language and the words that leaders use in creating psychological safety or not, as the case may be. David Marquet is just brilliant at helping leaders to frame language well. On episode 241, he tells his story about taking over command of the USS Santa Fe in the United States Navy and turning that ship around. That's the title of his book, Turn the Ship Around. And also, more importantly, the lessons for all of us as leaders and how we can use language to really inspire leadership amongst the people that we have the privilege to serve. I would strongly recommend that episode as well. And I know many of you are fans of David's work. He's working on a new book, and he's going to be back on the show as well soon. So watch more for that too. And finally, I'd recommend episode 363, The Path of Humble Leadership with Edgar Schein and Peter Schein. Uh, We couldn't have a conversation about psychological safety without mentioning the work of Edgar Schein. He was on episode 363, and Edgar and Peter talked about the importance and really, I would say today, the necessity of humility in leadership. It goes against the grain of what a lot of us learned and a lot of us saw in our parents' and grandparents' generations as far as how they handled leadership and organizations and in the workplace. So much opportunity for us as leaders to step into humility more. If you were inspired by what Amy said, I'd encourage you to continue that learning for yourself on episode 363 with Edgar Schein. All of those episodes are available on the Coaching for Leaders website for free. You can just go to coachingforleaders.com slash the episode number, or you can set up your free membership, which will make things even easier for you. Just go to coachingforleaders.com, set up your free membership. That's going to allow you to get access to every episode since 2011, and more importantly, allow you to be able to search the episodes by topic. So for example, one of the topics that you'll see this episode categorized is on organizational culture and organizational change. We've done a ton of conversations on that over the years. If that is top of mind for you right now, setting up your free membership and searching for that will be of great value to you. It will also give you access to my free 10-day audio course titled 10 Ways to Empower the People You Lead you'll give me 10 minutes a day for 10 days, it'll help you to get the most immediate practical actions to become a better leader. Plus, full access to my weekly leadership guides, the book notes, including all of the notes and highlights I made on Amy's book are available within the membership portal and every book we've had on the show, at least over the last couple of years. Again, you can set up your free membership, get access to all of that for free. Go over to Coaching for Leaders. And hey, if this episode was useful to you, please pass it along to someone else who would benefit from creating more psychological safety in their organization as well. Thank you, and uh, they'll thank you as well. Have a wonderful week, and I look forward to seeing you back next Monday. Take care.